0: Hello, and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Seth Table. Do you remember strong and stable leadership under Theresa May? Not a coalition of chaos between Labour and the SNP? It didn't exactly go to plan. A recent ranking of all the British Prime Ministers put Theresa May at number 50 out of 55. But since then, we've had at least two worst Prime Ministers of all time, so have we forgotten just how bad Theresa May was? Here to shed some light on this is Tim Bale, Tim is Professor of Politics at Queen Mary, University of London, and is prolific in writing on political topics including both Labour and the Conservatives, as well as elections. He also tweets a lot. His latest book is The Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation. Tim, welcome to The Bunker.
1: Hi there. I'm just laughing at you saying he tweets a lot. <laughs> I think that means too much. But anyway, <laughs> thanks for having me. Delighted. Um. Tim, have I wronged her in my
0: introduction? Was Theresa May an underestimated great prime minister? I don't
1: think she was ever destined to be a great prime minister. I do think, however, it's fair to say, and probably fair to her, to say that she did inherit some very, very difficult circumstances and, of course, a very difficult parliamentary party, and in particular, a few... Uh, figures who were absolutely desperate to take over the leadership from her almost as soon as she'd taken over, um, particularly after the the 2017 election, which we can talk about a bit later. So I'm not so sure that in the future, historians will be quite uh, as condemnatory as uh, some people have been recently. Why is that? Well, I mean, it's partly, as I say, because, uh, you know, circumstances, I think, did combine to make it very, very difficult for her. I also think there's an extent to which she was, although clearly the decision was ultimately hers, pressured into holding an early general election, which in some ways is key to quite why her premiership um, collapsed in such ignominy over the, the you know preceding 18 months or so. I think you know, she did, uh, certainly in comparison to the, the two other figures that you have mentioned, <laughs> if not explicitly, <laughs> and I assume we're talking about Boris Johnson and Liz Truss there, actually do the work in the sense that, you know, she was pretty conscientious and nor was she necessarily much of an ideologue either and not completely obsessed with her image. So, um, you know, some of the the strengths that I think she had would have been useful as a prime minister in any other circumstances. Just that, as I say, the circumstances were pretty terrible. That's not to deny that, you know, some of the problems were of of her own making. I think uh, to say that, you know, she was an absolute disaster and destined to be an absolute disaster would be wrong. So let's look maybe a bit at her preparation, because she'd been at the top of Tory politics for a very long time.
0: She'd been a frontbencher since the early 2000s. She'd been Home Secretary, one of the great offices of state for six years before becoming Prime Minister. Wasn't she arguably one of the most experienced people in recent years to become PM?
1: Yes, I I think that that is a good point. I mean, one could argue that perhaps, however, that experience was rather limited in the sense that she'd spent an awful long time at the Home Office. And as a result, I think, came to see um, politics um, through the prism of that particular role. And I think that also meant that she saw the uh, Brexit referendum result uh, through the, the prism of, of immigration, which was, of course, her big obsession during her time as as a home secretary. And that, I think, led her rather sooner than should have been the case, I think, to talk about a hard Brexit um, and leaving the single market in particular, uh, because in order to to end freedom of movement, that was something that we had to do. So I think that was a problem. I think also, clearly, you know, she took with her from the Home Office the two advisers that she'd had there who I think did a you know, sterling job for her at the Home Office, but weren't necessarily the right people to be in charge in Downing Street. And we're talking there about Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill for, you know, both have considerable strengths, but, but arguably in terms of their interaction with other people within the government and indeed the civil service, you know, perhaps created more problems for Theresa May than they solved. And
0: was that one of the main failings then, the the difficulty of working in government or across different departments rather than just within the Home Office?
1: Yeah, I I think that's probably true. I think, you know, while I wouldn't accuse Theresa May of having tunnel vision, I think she is one of those people who, you know, likes to concentrate on one thing at a time, so therefore found it quite difficult to balance all the things that necessarily hit a Prime Minister uh, simultaneously. And also, I, I would suggest that, you know, without necessarily being a control freak, she is someone who actually likes to be in, in control of things and, and probably also likes to make decisions rather meticulously. And that's, I think, something that's quite difficult to do when you're a prime minister. You have to admit to some extent that you have lost a certain degree of control and that you have to act on the hoof. And, and I just don't think that's Theresa May's style and certainly her style of government. Let's talk about the 2017
0: snap election. It was a real gamble and it was a turning point to, her premiership. Until that point, she really seemed to have sort of Midas touch. I remember, you know, the uh, image that she was the woman who promised to crush the saboteurs. And afterwards, it seemed like she couldn't do anything right. Is, is that fair?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think, and um, clearly, you know, there was a massive loss of authority as a result of, of losing that election. And, you know, there, there were good reasons in some ways to, to go for that election, as many people were arguing. She did have you know, a relatively tight majority, and certainly if she wanted to get a particular version of Brexit through the parliamentary party, then it was clear that she was probably going to have to burn off a few Brexit ultras in in doing that, and uh, perhaps actually also some soft Brexiteers. So, uh, you know, more of a majority would have given her more of a cushion. So, you know, one can see why. Uh, she was persuaded to do it, but on the other hand, and and you know this this comes over in the book because of um, you know some interviews that I did and, and and some documents that I saw, that actually the the research was pointing pretty clearly to the fact that voters themselves weren't keen on having an election and didn't really see that as a justification. For one, they really just wanted her to get on with the job of um, delivering brexit they didn 't want her to to waste any time with an election or doing that and voters you know were already quite concerned about the uncertainty that brexit had created mm. and felt that an election would simply increase that and and the research also showed that actually quite a lot of the the conservative vote was quite soft. Mm-hmm. And, you know, warned her that, you know, there, there was a danger that uh, people might, you know, flip over to, to the Labour Party, particularly because, uh, and again, this was something that came out of the research, people thought that the, the election was a done deal for the Conservatives, so mm. didn't really see much danger in voting for a a Labour MP mm. um, and, and getting a, a Conservative government. So that was a problem. And also, to be honest, you know, many of the people uh, advising her weren't as familiar with her as a politician than... They might have been, and therefore thought that she could handle a more kind of leadership-focused um, general election. You may remember it was very leadership-focused. It was yeah. Theresa May's Conservatives. You know, it was her signature on the on the you know the, the bus. Mm. Uh, you know, all the candidates were photographed with her. Um, it was very much a kind of presidential election, but you know, Theresa May's campaigning skills simply weren't up to that kind of campaign. So there was a problem there. Uh, as well, as well as all the mistakes made in the, the election campaign itself.
0: I remember a very dramatic example of that, which was a a video that the Conservatives made. And it was technically brilliant in that what it did is it had national messages given to you by Theresa May. And then you cut to her at a different angle. And she'd tell you about your local candidate and how brilliant Mm -hmm. they were in your area. But by the time she's filmed 600 of these for every constituency in the UK, she looks exhausted. I mean, most people would be. But it was a case where the technology was there, the targeting was there, you know, the online campaigning was there. But the actual content, the, the the showmanship, as it were, wasn't authentic.
1: No, and I and I do think she really struggled. And and uh, another sort of clip that people may remember, which you know really did go viral, was um, when you know she changed the policy on the so-called dementia tax mm. on the hoof because it was going down so badly, and yet she insisted nothing has changed, nothing <laughs> has changed. And 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 I think that really caused her a problem, as did. Her reply, I think it was to a nurse who was um, talking about um, you know, the need for more funding in the NHS, and you know, to to pay nurses more, and you know, she rather patronisingly said, you know, there's no magic money tree out there, uh, and that really, you know, contradicted in some ways the the whole thrust of the Conservative campaign, which was, you know, ending austerity. Mm. Um, so there were mixed messages going on there, delivered by someone who, you know, really, you know, wasn't um capable of of delivering them as effectively as uh, I think most you know, leaders of political parties. Normally are, and then of course you know classically, and this has happened before in conservative election campaigns. It wasn't exactly clear who was running the campaign. You know there there were differences between um, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill on the one hand, and uh, those who were rather disparagingly on occasions referred to as the Australians on the other. And
0: that um, U-turn in particular, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate just one particular moment, but it did seem to be the tipping point of the campaign. I wonder if up until that point, people felt they knew what they were getting with Theresa May. She wasn't a slick showman in the way that Tony Blair or David Cameron was, but she was a policy wonk. She was somebody who delivered in government. And this seems to be something where her main strength, you know, delivering policy, even that was suddenly in doubt.
1: Yes, I think that's a that's a very good point. You know, if you are running a campaign which emphasizes the fact that your leader is strong and stable, suddenly to, to do this, you know, this embarrassing switcheroo in the middle of the campaign does rather cast doubt upon that particular Quality, so yes, I think you, you've got a very good point there. But as you say, I mean, there were other things, you know, in the Conservative Manifesto that didn't go down very well. One that many people won't remember, but actually does seem to have made quite a lot of difference to um, to voters, or at least some voters anyway, was the idea that the Conservatives might reintroduce hunting with dogs, mm. you know, which went really viral on on social media, sort of under the the radar in some senses of the broadcasters and the the national newspapers. But does seem to have impacted on. Quite a lot of voters, judging by some of the research. So
0: was she very much defined by having a minority government, really, for the rest of the two years or so that she was prime minister?
1: Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't have been so bad if she'd been running a minority government on behalf of a conservative party that was united. <laughs> but of course, uh, the conservative party was then very, very badly divided, mm. partly because the Brexit ultras uh, on the conservative side realized that they could use the fact that she you know, didn't have any kind of cushion as leverage over her. And and therefore, you know, to use it as a way of gaining an even harder Brexit than she had um, first suggested, so that you know any attempt by her to to compromise with the the European Union and get some kind of deal, you know, first uh, of all on Northern Ireland, most obviously, could be um, defeated uh, by them quite easily in Parliament, particularly obviously because Labour weren't inclined to give her any kind of cross-party support. And actually, she wasn't inclined to ask Labour for any cross-party support because whatever you think about Theresa May, Uh, She's a very tribal um, Mm. conservative, so she had absolutely no intention whatsoever of of doing a deal, particularly with someone like Jeremy Corbyn. So she was caught really between, you know, uh, rock and a hard place, you know, the devil in the deep blue sea, however you want to put it.
0: And on that tribalism, um, one of the things that comes across very clearly in your book is this huge change to the Conservative Party over the last seven years or so, from this traditional party grounded in ideas and interests to a a sort of Brexit cult. Um, How much was Theresa May a a help or a hindrance to that?
1: Well, I mean, I think that is an interesting question. I mean, I think had Theresa May thought a little bit more about the kind of Brexit that she wanted when she first became prime minister and and hadn't uh, immediately gone for this kind of hard Brexit, she might well have been able to sell a, a slightly softer Brexit to uh, both her parliamentary party uh, and indeed, you know, voters as a whole. I think, you know, once she came down in favour of a hard Brexit, then it was always going to be the case that you know, the Brexit ultras in her party were going to try and push her for an even harder Brexit. And I think she did make that worse a little bit later on, when she started talking about, you know, no deal is better than a bad deal. I think until then, most Brexit ultras hadn't really thought about the possibility seriously that they could get a, a, you know, a a no deal departure from the European Union, a complete break Mm. that many of them were looking for. So in some ways, by uttering that phrase she probably legitimated their campaign for just such a break so i I don't think she helped herself uh, at all in that respect
0: and the conservatives were traditionally very much the party of people like disraeli churchill macmillan and then a big departure thatcher how does theresa may measure up against them
1: well, I mean it's interesting if you uh, you know ask what um Theresa May's vision of Britain was, uh you would argue that it was relatively speaking, at least in conservative terms anyway, fairly centrist. Mm-hmm. I mean uh, her whole thrust when she took over was ending austerity, fixing the burning injustices uh, as she put it. Very much influenced by Nick Timothy, uh, who you know was very concerned about you know some of the inequalities that we see in, in British society, the need to move away from a kind of free market fundamentalism that you know some people argue had rather dominated the Conservative Party um, since uh, Margaret Thatcher, and you know hadn't really been adjusted, and perhaps indeed in some ways put on steroids by David Cameron and, and George Osborne, and yet she became so preoccupied. With Brexit and Brexit, I think you know was already beginning to you know damage people's confidence in the in the British economy. That there just wasn't the kind of growth there in the economy, nor indeed the mindset in Number Ten to actually you know tackle some of the issues that um, she talked about. So there was an extent to which she'd overpromised in that general election campaign and indeed in her leadership campaign, and mm. couldn't possibly deliver um, some of the you know the rather more kind of centrist um, public service stuff that many voters thought they were going to get from her. So, you know, that was doubly problematic in some ways.
0: And some of her closest supporters, people like Damien Green and Gavin Barwell, people on the centrist or even the One Nation wing of the Tories, but that didn't seem to really be representative of where the parliamentary party was at the time, the MPs she had to work with.
1: No, I think you're quite right. I mean, I think, you know, um, Nick Timothy, you know, who, as I say, was to some extent her, you know, biggest influence and, uh, you know, her guru, although you might laugh at me saying that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, was not where most conservative MPs are. I mean, uh, or were. I think it's fair to say, you know, putting it bluntly, that most conservative MPs are still bog standard Thatcherites. You know, some of them are more fiscally conservative than others. Um, some of them are more radical than others. And, you know, you have this difference now between Rishi Sunak, if you like, and, and Liz Truss, I think, who personify those two wings. Mm. But nevertheless, there are two sides of the same Um, Thatcherite coin. And and that's definitely where the the bulk of the Conservative Party is, uh, at least in terms of its views on on the economy. I mean, I think, you know, there are um, quite big differences between Conservative MPs when it comes to social issues or, Mm. you know, moral concerns. But uh, I think when it comes to the economy, they're all pretty much united and they really don't want uh, a bigger state. They really don't want you know more spending and they really do want tax cuts whenever possible.
0: Mm. And something you touched on at the outset was some of these characters, shall we say, in her cabinet who really wanted her job. Um, she did have a, a cabinet that were really at each other's throats. I mean, why do you think that was more so than many, many other cabinets?
1: Well, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, she did get rid of a lot of people when she first came in. So I think she, you know, she she almost got rid of half of the cabinet mm. and uh, put in either people she felt that she could trust or people that she wanted not for, to find a point on it, pissing out of the tent rather than pissing in. And, and you know, we would obviously include uh, Boris Johnson uh, in in that respect. There wasn't room for Michael Gove uh, at first, but in the end, he he was um, tempted back. I mean, I think, you know, why they were at, at odds with each other was because, a, they had very different visions of what Brexit should be. So, if you take someone like Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, he was really all about minimising the damage of Brexit as far as he was concerned. And there were other uh, members of the cabinet who, you know, were very much in line with with his thinking on that. Mm. And then you had. Other members of the cabinet, you know, people like David Davis, people like Boris Johnson, most obviously, who, you know, actually did seriously think of Brexit as a major opportunity that needed to be grasped. So there was a a kind of ideological divide there. And then when you combine that clearly with the leadership ambitions, particularly obviously of Boris Johnson, I think that did radically destabilize the government. And of course, once Boris Johnson actually left the cabinet after the 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 checkers summit mm. you really had a, a kind of ongoing and concerted attempt by johnson and you know those around him uh, to destabilize may uh, and eventually to push her out uh, you know led in part by the erg
0: on those um, attempts actually how, how damaging do you think the attempted coups were because she did survive a vote of no confidence just like boris johnson did after her but it did seem to only
1: show that her time was up Yes, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, it's interesting. She did survive, you know, that that confidence vote. But mainly, I think, because um, many Conservative MPs were rather alarmed about the alternative, and the alternative at that time was Boris Johnson. They hadn't really got to the point of desperation, which they later reached in the spring and summer uh, of 2019, where, you know, he became really you know the kind of break glass in case of emergency candidate you know they just couldn't see any other way out other than Boris Johnson so despite their reservations uh, they decided that 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 May would have to go but of course the fact that you know she didn't really have much support and was there faute de mieux, you know she was there simply because they didn't want Johnson at that time i think mm. you know made it very very difficult for her and people were just thinking I and mean, in this obviously included the EU to some extent as well, and indeed the Labour Party. And that made them, I think, even less inclined to do a deal with her than would otherwise been the case. You know, they were all thinking that Theresa May would eventually be replaced. So Mm -hmm. why actually help her out of the situation she was in? Because, you know, there was no guarantee that anything you agreed with her would eventually come to pass simply because the, the Tory party was about to supposedly get rid of her. What do you think
0: Theresa May's legacy will be? Because I, I remember a private eye front cover which uh, listed her achievements in full and it was a blank sheet of paper. But even with all the chaos, she did get some important reforms through, um, like anti-domestic violence legislation. I mean, what, what do, you, do you think will remember her for?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, she she does have a, a a record that she can, to some extent, be proud of, you know, as you say, uh, on, on domestic violence, on, on modern slavery, uh, for example. You you can argue, Um, you know, there was a long term plan for the NHS, which was introduced under her, although that's been uh, revised pretty quickly. Uh, So she could point to that uh, as well. I mean, Gavin Barwell's book's very interesting on this. You know, there, there there were plans, but, you know, they they all really just collapsed in the face of, of Brexit, which, you know, blotted out the sun in mm-hmm. a way. And by the time it came to Theresa May's departure, when she knew she was going, she couldn't really convince uh, any of her colleagues to back um, some of the things that she wanted to do simply because they knew that someone else was coming in. And, uh, uh, you know, they didn't necessarily want to spend money on things that might well be reverse. And Philip Hammond is a very good example of that.
0: One last thing I'd like to suggest is that how we remember a prime minister is often forged by their time as an ex-prime minister. John Major and Gordon Brown, for instance, have both had their standing hugely improved uh, in their time since they've left office, while um, David Cameron looks rather shiftier than ever after the Greensill scandal. What kind of an ex-prime minister has Theresa May been?
1: Well, I mean, she's become almost famous now for, you know, making some uh, very tart observations on government policy, you know, uh, across a whole range uh, of subjects. You know, she is listened to by conservative MPs and indeed MPs uh, across the House and uh, listened to by, by people who cover politics as well. She is taken seriously. In part, I think, because she hasn't simply departed the stage and gone off to you know, earn lots of money, although she she has actually made quite a lot of money from um, speaking engagements, which mm. many people forget, mm. and, and would perhaps come as a surprise to people who remember <laughs> some of her performances at Conservative Party golf well, So did John Major. But, um, Yes, that's right. And, and uh, I do think she's garnered a certain amount of respect for for not running off and, you know, going and doing um, something else. It's very noticeable, however, though she is actually willing to wound, she's not willing to kill in the sense that although she makes criticisms of government policy, she hasn't yet, I think, voted against the government in the lobbies. Um, she hasn't, as it were, put a vote where her, her mouth is. So although her interventions, I think, have been quite powerful, hmm. they possibly are aren't quite as powerful as they might be if she were actually to to trot into the opposition lobby now and then. But that is something that as a tribal conservative and someone obviously who, you know, resented the fact that many people were so disloyal to her, you know, it's not something I, I think we will expect or could expect Theresa May to do.
0: Well, thank you, Tim. It's been fascinating as ever. And um, if we hadn't come up to time, I'd have happily gone on for an hour or two. Tim's book, The Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation, is a rollicking read on the last few years of madness. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us. We'll be back soon with another edition. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue of shows like The Bunker, Oh God, What Now?, origin story arthur snell's doomsday watch and our latest edition paper cuts thanks for listening we'll see you next time
1: the bunker daily was written and presented by seth tavo the producer was chris jones with audio production by me jade bailey the managing editor is jacob jarvis and the group editor is andrew harrison With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.